We have said already that to be in Christ is to be in the arena of an ongoing, eternal, living oneness with our God. It's also to be in the arena of a personal freedom that goes beyond definition or description. You simply have to experience it. And we can break it down and talk about those components of freedom uh, like we did last night. But it's simply more of uh, inhaling the living truth of the Holy Spirit and learning to let that move, as it were, aerobically through every part of your system so that you're learning to walk in that freedom for which Christ set us free. But to be in Christ is also to be in the arena of personal transformation. In fact, in the New Testament... Being in Christ is the story of a man who's being changed by God. And, and maybe even more accurately, it's the story of someone whose life has been exchanged. One type of life for another, one kind of life for another, that don't really overlap. They're mutually exclusive. And I think that's why the song that we just sang from Galatians 2.20 and the words that Paul used in that letter to that young Galatian church that when he said, the life I now live, the now gets some kind of emphasis. It points to the contrast of what I was as a man before I was in Christ. And if someone were to say to Paul, well, what happened to the life you used to live? Paul says, well, it died. It was crucified. It was buried. And how did you get this new life? I was raised by Christ Himself, joined to His forever life. And that means there's an immeasurable gulf between me now and what I once was. And what we're doing is learning what the, the differences that come into our realm because of this new beingness. There is a new beingness, a new existential creature. I am someone I was not before. But there are also new behaviors even that come with that awareness. I do what I do now because of who I am. And there are certain things that I cannot continue doing if I want to walk in the freedom for which Christ has now set me free. And so there's a new reference point for all of my decision-making. And that doesn't mean the repenting and consenting is over. It doesn't mean because I'm in Christ there aren't any decisions or choices to be made any longer. In fact, choosing is a spiritual action. And we learn to choose from our spirits in which the Spirit of Christ Himself dwells. So if we're going to ask the question, what is spiritual or Christian transformation? I'm going to answer it very simply this morning. It's getting used to being in Christ. That's what the transformational journey is about. There are still ruts in my brain and habit patterns of thinking and feeling and choosing that are not quite fully adjusted to or accustomed to what it means to actually be in Christ. If we read a verse like Acts 17, 28, we read, In Him, here's our phrase, In Christ, we live. And we move and we have our very beingness. So the transformational process is getting used to being in Christ. There's something dynamic about that. It is not a static, one-time, fixed awareness. We are being moved by the Spirit of Christ in us from sickness into health. Hopefully some of us are a bit different in this area than we were when we first met Christ. Hopefully, we're letting go of some of those life-sucking obsessions that we thought were necessary to be a person that mattered. It's being moved by the Spirit of God from an infancy to maturity. It is laying down our childish constructs of life. And it involves, for those of us who met Christ at, as children at a young age, laying down our childhood constructs of God. When we were 13, when we were 16, maybe when we were 21, we thought God was this. And it's not that we were entirely wrong. We thought that's all He was. And because He is eternal, He is constantly revealing 
portions of who He is to us through the dailiness of life that require us to let go of some of our childhood constructs of who we thought God was. Paul says, when I became a man, I put away some of those childish things. It's also moving and being moved by the Spirit of God from being receivers into being givers. Now, I know we all know who the giver is And there are no self-constructed gifts we could give to anyone that would make an eternal difference in their lives. But we are also being transformed by the Spirit of God into thinking, this is all about me and my spiritual blessings and my spiritual growth and my character development and my successful investments. It's more than that. In fact, God is teaching us to grow up to a place where we can say with an inner certainty, a confidence, I know who's got all that covered for me. I don't have to walk into a room any longer looking out for me. I can step into that room and look out for the needs of other people. That's transformation. That's getting used to being in Christ. Again, we don't work it up. I don't even think we pray it down. But there is a responsivity to it. This transformation that we all sing about and pray about and read books about is not found in carefree passivity. It is not for hearers only. It is not for book readers. It is not for note takers. It is not for retreatants. Transformation doesn't occur here in a retreat. You might get revelation. But transformation occurs when we leave this place with this opinion that we believe is God's and find ourselves in one of those tight squeezings tomorrow and we've got a choice to make. Are we going to believe in what always worked for us in the past or are we going to believe what God said to us Sunday morning? So it is calling for a cooperation with God's operation. And that means Christian transformation doesn't occur when I'm trying really hard to be like Jesus. Christian transformation is only going to occur when I'm trusting Jesus to come out of me as Jesus. When I'm trusting Him to be Himself in and through and as me. And I think all of us in this room have learned this thing called Christian transformation unfolds a little more slowly than most of us prefer. Can I get a witness? And it definitely unfolds more slowly than what the people outside of us would prefer, right? Well, if you know so much about Jesus in you, why do you still act like the devil lives in you? But we're learning to cooperate with the rhythms of God's grace. In fact, there's a wonderful Old Testament verse in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And it says these words, He who believes in Him, and the Hebrew is literally this, will not be hurried. Will not get in a hurry. As we're being transformed, our inner clock is being tuned to the rhythms of God, isn't it? And man, that may be one of the most significant parts of transformation. Don't think for a moment it's about propositions and principles and uh, methods and formulas. You've heard enough about that all weekend. Just keep this in mind. It's always personal. That's why we started Friday night saying that justification and sanctification and glorification are always personal. It is the justifier, the sanctifier, the glorifier, doing what only He can do for us and then through us. Same way with transformation. It's not going to be found in rule keeping. We don't gather it by gathering together in a classroom. We're not ever going to find it in the law. In fact, Paul makes it clear to the Galatians that this tutor, this child conductor, this pedagogue called the law has to be left at the door if you want to step into the room of spiritual transformation by Christ. The law's never been the agent of transformation. It's the New Testament's way of saying this. God has closed every door to godliness but Christ. Every other door has been slammed shut and locked because a person showed up and said what? 
I am the door. That little definite article adjective slams every other door to godliness shut and locks it. And the key has been thrown away. So it's always going to be about the person of Jesus Christ. So Christian transformation is the very personal life of Jesus being enfleshed through you and me, through the body of Christ in our person. And we've got to keep this in mind. We've made it clear, Frank and I both, we are not under law. But don't ever forget we are under the Lord. We are not sovereign selves. This is not a relationship among equals. It is a living under life. Under the controlling influence of God. Under the controlling influence of grace, if you will, as Frank presented it last night. It's also the living, the living through life. It's Christ living through us. It's the living without life. In fact, a significant part of Christian transformation is learning what we can live without. It's letting go of things. It's shedding things that are inhibiting, obstructing, blocking, cramping the flow of His life through us. Think about a couple of examples. I think most of us are aware at some point when we get serious about who God is and where He is and what He's up to in us, we've been carrying around way too much baggage. We've got all kinds of things we picked up from a voice that wasn't God's voice. We've got certain attitudes and ideas and defense mechanisms that didn't come from God in the first place. And the Spirit of God in the process of transforming us evermore into the fullness of Jesus Christ and His living expression is teaching us there's no room for this stuff. There's no need for this stuff any longer. And so a revelation comes to you and me. And all of a sudden our eyes are open to Romans 8.28. And we dare to believe and say, we know God is causing all things to work together for good. There is a personal, redeeming, loving, sovereign God in the midst of every life event. And what are we learning to let go of? The need to be, the illusion that we ever could be in control. And all of a sudden, what transformation inhibitor falls by the wayside? Demandedness. Life on my terms. Don't think for a minute the fullness of Jesus Christ can find His expression in you and me if we're living and carrying around the heavy burden of having to have life on my terms before I'm going to be happy with you. Maybe we get a revelation of 1 John 4 about God's active personal love. God is love. And His objective is to love me out of my fears. And what do I realize? I can let go of fear. And a lot of us have hired fear to be the primary advisor on how to invest our lives. And we learn we can fire that guy. Fear doesn't need to be the advisor on how we relate to other people and what we do with the resources God has entrusted to us. And what starts falling by the wayside? The self-absorption that fear brings into a human life. Maybe the lights come on about God's personal goodness to us. Maybe you're reading the Psalms and you read about how God is always good. And we bit by bit, piece by piece, day by day, begin to shed or let go of thinking life is in the goods, that my security is in the square feet in my house, or my identity is in the insignia on my clothing, or my significance is attached to how much money maybe I have in the bank. Because the one of the primary transformation inhibitors that many of us still carrying around for all we know is that we're still way too heavily invested in what is passing away. Do you know how much energy that takes? Do you know how much time it takes to be that heavily invested in things that are here today and gone tomorrow? 
Maybe you were reading Romans 15, 7 one day and you read about accepting one another as God in Christ has accepted you. And the second part of that verse just overwhelmed you. I see it. It's right there. Aha! I am already perfectly accepted in the Beloved. Beloved, what can I let go of? The self-rejection I've been carrying around for 57 years. The self-hatred that I've tried to fight and overcome through the power of positive thinking for the last 20 years. And I can start to let go of what has been inhibiting the flow of Christ's life in me with such things as a judgmental, critical attitude, not only of other people, but even of my own self every time I look in the mirror. And the life of Jesus begins to flow. Transformation occurs. Maybe we're reading Romans chapter 14, verse 23, and we read, whatever is not of faith is of sin, is sin. Whatever we put our trust in that didn't come from God is not going to work in our favor. And so we start shedding, letting go of the rationalizations and the excuses we've been using to stay the same. Because one of the primary transformation inhibitors that I see day in and day out in the counseling office is blame. I've never seen anybody get up and walk out of one of those situations healed until they've laid down their blame. There's all kinds of transformation going on around us. A lot of it is letting go of things that are not me any longer. They're not Christ in me any longer. Because we all start this journey of Christian transformation complete in Christ. You've read the verses before from Colossians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10. Or maybe from 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. We've received everything pertaining to godliness. That's where we start. We've got completion, the fullness of God in us. That's where every eight-year-old who trusts in Jesus begins, whether they know it or not. We start from that place as fully and perfectly saved ones for one reason only. There is now a full and perfect Savior abiding in us. We're not consciously aware of what happened to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But what are we also learning? Because it is all of grace. It's no struggle any longer to acquire all these experiences and special gifts and systematized theologies and spiritual secrets to gain the status of fullness with God. We were born again with that fullness. Well, you talk about being liberated from being on this hunt, this journey for all these extracurricular things that are unnecessary. In fact, even way down the journey, what a liberation it is. There's nothing, absolutely nothing we need now for life or godliness that is alien or outside of us. In Christ, Christ in me, Christ in you. So what are we learning by the teaching of the Spirit? That through the stuff of life, the joyful stuff and the painful stuff, the pleasant stuff and the sad stuff, the routine, everyday, boring stuff and the absolutely take-your-breath-away surprising stuff, that we're learning if these things are true, we need to have Jesus Christ as the determining reality for every circumstance we're in. He is our point of reference. All of what we call Christianity has its origins in Christ. We've received the life pleasing to God. And that means there will never ever be a directive given to you or a temptation that comes against you or me that does not have an adequate corresponding supply of the life of Christ already in us. And you talk about starting the interpretive process for your day from that place, from that liberating truth, and see how different your interpretations become throughout the day. That when this command to love an adversary or this uh, 
pull toward a habit pattern that used to be a soothing mechanism of mine that's no longer helping me. In fact, it's hurting people around me, those that I care, to know that when either of those kinds of things comes against me, I have already in place. I may not know how to lay hold of it yet. It may be a pure faith thing. I don't feel it. I don't sense it. Nobody's confirmed it in me, but to start from the place that I already have a corresponding and adequate supply of life and godliness in me for that contingency is to start from a place of victory. This is God growing us up. This is God teaching us that what we read in 1 John 5, 3 that didn't make a bit of sense to our brain. You remember, I know you don't all remember what that is, but you'll recognize it when I say it in a minute. In 1 John 5, 3, you're studying through 1 John, you're reading that, it's your morning devotional, and you come to the commands are not a burden to us. And you're going, who is that guy writing to? To pray for your adversaries, to bless those who persecute you, to go the second mile with people that don't even deserve the first mile? And you think the commands are not a burden to us? Who are you talking to? At that moment, you're thinking from separation. You think he's talking to you. And if you're thinking and receiving and reading your Bible from a place of separation, you're going, that guy is nuts. He's not speaking to you. He's speaking to Christ in you. Remember, there is no just you any longer. The commands will always be a burden to Adam life. Separated life. The commands are not a burden to Christ's life. That is a reminder That is an encouraging, affirming word from the Spirit that what I'm about to lay on you at 4 o'clock this afternoon will not be too much for Christ in you. Be ready. That's what that means when you read that at 7.30 in the morning. Not against me, but Christ in me. This is Christ moving us from not I, but Christ. And so how does He transform us? How does He keep this dynamic movement going? Any way He wants to, He's God, right? But mostly, He just inflicts life on us every day. That's the stuff. That's the thank God for everything. That's the rejoice in the Lord always clauses. That's the from Him and through Him and back to Him idea all in one place. God determines whatever conditions are necessary to maximize our value to the kingdom and to His body on earth, and He puts those conditions into place for you and me. He rarely consults us. Uh, Would this be a good day to lose your job? Because if it's not, I can put it off six months. He doesn't. He determines. Remember, under the Lord? Under the Lord? We're not consulted. It's rarely put up to a vote. It's fairly customized and individualized. It's no use doing what one of the disciples did to Jesus when he invited him, commanded him to move forward, and he turned around and said, well, what about this guy? Right? Hey, wait a minute. Why are you putting that on me? What about this guy? Listen, this is individualized. This is customized for you and me. God's determined what it is for the kingdom's sake that needs to come out of us. And He puts us in real life situations where a response is required so the spiritual and psychological realities of being in Christ can be affirmed in you and me. The easiest thing in the world is to come here and talk about abstract ideas like in Christ because that's just an abstract phrase. There's no sweat in reading a book about a theological construct called the exchanged life or union life. doesn't require a thing of me. But God's going to move us into the lab because He made a wonderful promise to you and me in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Welcome to the family. I promise you, I'm going to finish everything that I just began in you. 
You're not going to miss out on anything. I'm going to condition you to be a vessel of my free and full expression. Welcome to the land you know not of. It is an adventure. It is a journey. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to make you solid. I'm going to make you real. You need to be solid and real to be a living, viable expression of the solid and real life I've just put in you. And I'm going to use the all things of life. It's amazing how many times you read that clause in the New Testament. Thank God for all things. Rejoice in all things. God causes all things. And it's over and over there. And that's a little bit of a code phrase when you come to it, because you could interpret it this way. These all things are things you'd rather not have to deal with most days. You've got to learn the code language of God here. It's not that he doesn't say it up straight, but he has a way of saying it that teaches us to trust him. Yes, it's like he told the children of Israel, yes. You have crossed the Jordan. You are in the promised land. But there is a Hittite behind every rock. There will be battles to fight. There are going to be adversaries. I've determined these are necessary for your transformation. So keep this in mind. Genuine Christian transformation is not for the faint of heart. You don't get it in the lazy boy. You don't get it in the retreat. It doesn't come that way because there's no transformation in theory. There's no growing up in abstract. You know what that's like. You get a revelation in a meeting like this and, oh, it's not I, but it's Christ and the lover lives in me. And you've got this vision already in your mind about how you're going to go home and love all these people to Jesus. And it ain't four o'clock in the afternoon before you're going rat, 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 rat. (laughs) That slick preacher about had me talked into believing I was a lover. It's a theory. It's abstract till we get right back into the mess. And I mean, I I will not take the time. Some of them are on that screen up there, I think. But there are so many verses that point to this. Just take something as simple as John 16, 33, Jesus' own words. I promise you this. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's just one of about 200 But don't ever step back and say, God didn't tell me. Maybe the people at church didn't tell you this, but God has told us. This is what's coming. This is how it's going to happen. I'm rarely going to consult you. I determine that because I have bought you with a price, you do not belong to yourself any longer. I determine, even if it means you are expendable for my kingdom's sake, I determine what is in the best interest of my family. Get used to it. Get used to it. These are all real life events that come by God's say so. Read something as simple as 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, we do not lose heart, because you could hear all this say, man, I'm, I wish I'd have gone home with everybody else this morning. <laughs> do not lose heart. Even though this outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Here's the transformation process. Here's the clue on which we should be paying more attention to. And he says in verse 17, for momentary light affliction, you can read 2 Corinthians 11 for Paul's list of light afflictions, is producing for us. Do you catch that one word? It's producing for us. God says, I mean the tribulation, the suffering, the persecution, the afflictions, the squeezings, the trials, the temptations. I mean those to be productive for you. I put them into motion so that they will produce something. What? A weight of glory. That's almost... Redundant, because glory is weight, it's substance, it's something solid, something you have to deal with. I'm doing this so that the weight of glory is so far beyond your understanding and what you know to compare it to. I'm giving you a gift in this. And I'm asking you this, don't just look at the things which are seen, look for me in this. Look for the unseen. 
Don't set your mind on the things which are temporary, but on the things which are eternal and forever. It's the New Testament's way of saying, you don't ever want to see these all things of life coming from any hand but your Father's. Well, what about the temptations? He works for God. He just doesn't know it. In those moments, the devil becomes God's necessary agent of delivery. And the thing that he thinks he's meaning to pull you out here into the far country is the very same thing the Father means to show you every resource you need is at home in him. Joseph knew this in the Old Testament, right? When he looked at his brothers and said, what you meant for evil, I mean it for your good. My God means it for good. So there's no transformative power in the events, only in the person of Christ. The events just are the wake-up call. They get our attention so that we can hear from God and return to the action, not glory in the revelation. There's no transformation in the revelation. There's no transformation in the all things of life. It is God alone who gives ultimate meaning to all these things. So how do we cooperate with his operation? You and I might find a thousand different ways to talk about this, and people would talk about it differently from how God has done it in them. But let's start with Romans chapter 1, verse 17. If God's going to transform us into the image of Christ, how are we going to get through this stuff? For the righteous ones, that's us. We're going to go through it by faith. And that implies a choice. Unlike the grapevine, unlike the clay at the potter's house, we have a say-so. We have in Christ the freedom to choose. We've talked about that in years past, so I'm not going to go into it, other than to say we are not automatons. We are not hollow straws. We are not just dust in the wind. We've been graced by God with the freedom to make a choice. So one of these all things, one of these precipitating events comes into our life. We have an honest reaction to it. And that reaction and all that goes with it is the call to worship our God. And as we worship our God in that moment, having no idea what's going on, not the least bit aware of what God is up to, we listen for Him. We wait for His revelation. And maybe it's within a minute, maybe it's within an hour, maybe in certain facets of our life it's months or years down the road. But we wait upon God to make Himself known to us. And when He does, we step into the obedience of faith. And then this thing called transformation has the possibility of occurring. We like to think that transformation should come so that I can believe and trust God. The transformation we're talking about rarely precedes, almost always follows the obedience of faith. We start with simply being honest. And boy, that's why Frank and I would spend so much time in a before a teaching like this talking about your oneness with God and your freedom with God and no condemnation with God and no fear of rejection. Some event comes into our life and some specific transformative experience and it almost always starts with a little ego spasm. A little soul burp. Mm. You find it really hard to digest and process what is just slammed up against you. Listen, that's normal. That means you've got a pulse. That means you're alive. And we're learning. We can be honest with God. There's no fear of being rejected by Him if we tell Him our version of the story. And that's where we start. We honestly own and acknowledge our story. Why? Because grace works when we're honest. Transformation doesn't occur when we're repressing our soul pain. Transformation doesn't occur when we reach out to the world's antacids and pop a few to make the soul burp go down. Transformation occurs when we honestly say, I am sick to my stomach of this. Grace has the possibility of working when we're honest. Think about it for a minute. Denial, repression. 
projecting onto other people, whatever it is. These are all carnal ways we deal with our upsetness, isn't it? All carnal ways. Grace flows when we're honest. We realize the gravity of this particular terrestrial situation here on earth, but we know it's not telling us the whole story. And maybe it's like the disciples in the boat with Jesus when the storm hits. They have an ego spasm. They think they're going to die. And they run to Jesus with this complaint. Don't you care that we're going to drown here? I love that. You don't hear much of that in the Wednesday night Baptist prayer meeting, do you? Or maybe like Habakkuk. How long, oh God, do I have to live with this? Or maybe like the psalmist in Psalm 73, where he registers this amazing, alarming complaint to God. God, I thought you were going to be good to your people. Then why is it the not good people, the not your people seem to be blessed? I get up every single day only to be knocked down, and you don't care, do you? That's in your Bible. Go read it. Psalm 73. That's not the living version either. That's the real story. It starts with honesty. Because in Christ, we have a safe place to go with our story. We can take our interpretation of the facts the feelings that we have without the fear of being unloved or rejected. We pour out our limited, finite, self-preserving story into the unlimited, infinite, forever caring love of God and trust it there. If you don't know how to do that and you've been afraid to do it, again, just go back and start praying through the Psalms if you've never done that as a short-term spiritual discipline. Why is that so? God is ultimately real. You and I will only enter into the reality of God when we're real. We will not enter into the reality of in Christ by projecting some false image, by denying some painful gut reaction to our circumstances. We stand with all confidence before God and say, this is my story, this is my will, this is my way. Now... I lay it down before you. But you got to start with the honesty. We submit our story to God. We humble ourselves before Him. We lay down our hubris. That Greek word that shows up in all the Greek tragedies. It's really hard to define, but it's a really bad idea, whatever it is. Because every time in one of the Greek tragedies someone experienced or expressed hubris, this arrogant presumption, this defiance of the gods, you know who showed up every single time in one of those stories? Nemesis. The goddess of destruction and retribution. We own it. We don't apologize for it. This is my story. This is how I interpret the facts. God, this is what I would do if I were you. Will you do that? You have not because you ask not. I always ask God to do what I want first. (laughs) He's got the prerogative to turn it down, but I am not going to jump over first base. You have not because you ask not. That's base one. Change this person. (laughs) Right? You have not because you ask not. He just might. You never know. But what are we doing? We're, like Peter said in 2 Peter 5, 6, and 7, we're humbling ourselves before God so that we might be exalted by Him. We might be lifted up into His perspective on this thing. You and I have that prerogative anytime we want in Christ. And that particular reaction and that precipitating event that God is using to turn us into something solid and real and glorious is our call to worship. That's what every crisis in life is. It's a call to worship. It is ego dethronement. It is developing a faithful consciousness of God in the all things of life. It's got all kinds of different forms. But since we are in Christ, we are confronting all things with Christ. Because we are in Christ, He is our point of reference for everything in our realm. Psalmist said, I've set the Lord continually before me. 
I'm talking with our students in our church in the last few weeks about spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6. And I said, get yourself a battle cry. Get yourself a battle cry. And I remember when I was about their age in my early 20s, my battle cry was, first the kingdom. I don't think it matters what it is as long as it's a battle cry of truth. First the kingdom, which tuned and turned me toward God in that particular moment, whether I wanted to be in that moment or not. It can be not I, but Christ. It can be thank you, Jesus. That's a battle cry. Thank God for everything. It doesn't matter what it is, but learn to pay that attentiveness to God. There's a face-to-faceness with God when we worship Him. Our feelings don't have to support it. Our behavior doesn't have to change. But when we see the precipitating events that crash up against us in life as a call to worship, we are more likely to be moved from whining to that worship. Whining doesn't transform anybody. Too many of our prayers simply stop at filing briefs with the complaint department. And then we walk away. No, you get to file your brief with the complaint department with your honest reaction to God. And then you issue that battle cry and you go face to face with God. This is what begins to quiet some of the inner noise that makes it so difficult to hear God. This is like LASIK surgery for the inner eyes of your heart so that you are being graced by God with a see-through capacity because in worshiping God, we return to the single eye. We honestly tell our story to God usually from the point of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is what's happening and I don't like it or I think it's really good or I wish you would change it or whatever. But when we worship our God in that moment, we return to the single eye. This is not ultimately good for me. This is not ultimately bad for me. God, this is you for me. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 22, when your eye is single, you fill up with light. Why is that so important? We do too much interpreting in the darkness, don't we? Eye is single, you fill up with light. This is setting our mind on the things above, not just the things below, which you read about in Colossians 1. Because anytime you set your mind on the things below, you have many gods. Many, M-A-N-Y. Many gods. When you and I set our mind on the things above, we have one God, the single eye. God, this is you for me. And we find ourselves in the best position, the best posture possible for listening to God and the revelation that He does want to bring. A sense of expectancy puts us in that place. Join in with Samuel. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. We learn to present ourselves in loving attentiveness to God in the midst of great soul pain. And we present our bodies to Him as living and holy sacrifices. Have your way, do what you will, because I believe I am always being loved by you. You will always listen to the people who you believe have your best interest in mind. You will search hard for those people. You will seek out those people in a crisis. We know we're being perfectly loved by God, so we may listen single-mindedly. Why is that so important? James said, don't expect the double-minded man to receive anything from God in a moment like this. And double-mindedness means a lot of different things in different circumstances, but in what we're talking about here, spiritual transformation, a double-minded man would listen to God for one primary reason, only to discover his options, not to trust and obey. God, I would really like to know what you think, but I reserve the right to decide for myself what I'm going to choose. After a while of that, don't expect to hear anything from God. You expect the circumstances to do their work. And they will. God will have His way. He will finish what He began in you and me.
But we say, God, I'm ready to hear you. I present my body and all it contains to you in a non-selective readiness, not just to hear you, but to trust you and obey you. Now we're in the best posture possible for being led by the Spirit of God through this particular crisis. And the promise in Hebrews 11.6 is this, He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, diligently seek, listen for, set their eye on Him. And the reward is not some little secret mystical piece of information that will help me navigate through these circumstances successfully. The reward is God's disclosure of Himself to you and me because it is who you believe God to be that changes everything about the way you walk through that circumstance. It's where you believe God to be. There's our reward. Revelation is self-disclosure. It's God making Himself known to you and me. So in the light of who God is, I interpret this differently. This is first-hand faith. This is our problem in spiritual warfare. It's our problem in spiritual or Christian transformation. Most of what we have is second-hand. Nobody is transformed by second-hand faith. Nothing will be different about you three months from now because you heard... Sylvia Pierce or Jenny Feening or Frank Friedman say something. Don't you ever step into spiritual warfare claiming what somebody else said. You're toast. You're gone. This is first-hand faith. God, I want to know you. I want to be an expression of your life. Again, the meetings like this don't change anything. They might grant revelation. We might go home with certain opinions, but we'll not know the validity or the reality of them until we're in the fiery furnace somewhere. Honesty, being worshipful, giving thanks, listening and waiting, all of these very humbling. The revelation that comes to us might be exciting, but we don't have transformation yet. It's not that it's wasted. It's not some mechanical process we're going through. But too many of us think at that point, I've got this revelation, so now I have transformation. We are deceived at that point. We just let that knowledge make for arrogance in us. Why? Because the transformation requires a response. It requires our amen, our so be it. Paul starts that wonderfully deep theological tome called Romans in chapter 1 and bookends it in chapter 16 with this little phrase, the obedience of faith. You can read everything in there and get it into a system that makes sense to you and quote it all day long and not be anything like Jesus until you and I marry our chooser to the revelation. Listen, down through the years, too many of us in these Union Life, Exchange Life camps have lost this vital element. And I am not a prophet, but I will make a prophecy. Unless that changes, we are becoming a petrified forest of Union Life trees. It requires a response. The righteous live by faith. Transformational faith is, I believe you. That's first-hand faith. I don't believe Steve. I don't believe Frank. I don't believe Jenny. I don't believe Don. I don't believe Sylvia. God, I believe you. It's always personal. There is a time to stop taking notes. There's a time to stop praying about it. There's a time to quit reading books about it and swiftly obey. That reveals whether we are merely enchanted with the idea called exchange life or union life. And there are a lot of people in our land today enchanted with that idea and trying to use that idea, even in their institutional mainline churches, as a hook to get more people who are sick and tired of the law. But it's at this point we reveal whether we're merely enchanted with an idea or willing to be changed by God Himself. This was the rich young ruler's dilemma. He wanted what Jesus had, but not on Jesus' terms, right? He was enchanted with Jesus. 
I want what you have. But he would not come under the Lord, would he? So he walked away terribly disappointed, terribly empty, still as wispy and as hollow and as ethereal as he was when he asked the question, even though he got revelation straight from the lips of Jesus. Listen, this is where we subordinate our little I am to his I am. This is where we swap the lie we've been believing for the truth himself and return to the action of God. God living His life, God taking His Spirit through our bodies into the midst of the fray. This is why when Jesus spoke to Peter in the boat in the storm, Peter had to get out of the boat. He heard Jesus. He got revelation. Nothing changed in Peter until he got out of the boat. They caught no fish on a different occasion until they threw the net on the other side of the boat. You with me? The obedience of faith. Not just memorizing concepts. Listen, the transformation occurs when we forgive the offender by the forgiveness of Christ in us. When we drop the slander and abuse as a way to defend ourselves with a painfully difficult person. When we put on compassion and humility before people who disagree with us. Listen, this is what moves us from theological awareness to an operational oneness with God. And this is what Christian transformation is about. It is not about theological awareness, period. It is God moving us from theological awareness to operational oneness with Him. Living my life, God says, as you... That's why Jesus said in John 13, 17, and I've had people get up and walk out on me in union life meetings like this down through the years because I even quote the verse, blessed are you when you do these things. The blessedness isn't in the hearing. It's not in the theological awareness. Jesus said, you want a rock-solid life? You want a life that's so entrenched on the rock-solid reality of Christ who lives in you that there isn't a single storm in the created realm that could ever dislodge you from that place? That rock-solid life is for those who hear and obey me. Again, let's not put asunder what God has joined together. It's not obeying to get something from God. The obedience does not transform us. Only Christ is the agent of transformation. But this is how He is teaching us to cooperate with His operation. We lay aside the hindrances. And we see this transformation follows the obedience of faith. We have an integration now of nature and activity. A wholeness, a shalomness about us. Where we find our spirits have been filled and flooded with a full and perfect Savior. And our souls are being tuned and turned toward the Spirit of Christ in us. And our bodies, as weak as they are getting as we age, are becoming increasingly freer expressions of the life of Jesus Christ. That's the promise He made in you and me, to finish everything that He began. 